Father God, would you awaken us afresh to the reality that in Christ we have been given such a marvelous and even in full reality a scandalous love. Lord, for to be loved by the Father, the Son had to be crushed by that same Father. And so, Lord, as this conference has been all about, we have been seeing you declare precious truths to your saints. And Father, tonight, as we open your word, I pray that you would be merciful and get us all out of the way. Would you first, Lord, get me a man who, Lord, I confess I can do nothing of any lasting spiritual significance here this evening. As I need to remind my own soul, Lord, if you, by your spirit, through your sufficient word, do not speak, there'll be nothing worth hearing. Father, I also ask that all of us here tonight would be given ears to hear. Would you also get us all out of the way? Lord, I'm I'm not ignorant enough to think that there aren't some who entered here tonight, Lord, with hearts that are completely segmented and divided. Lord, they may be distracted by so many things, various things of the week and the past days, or maybe even thinking of things coming down the road. I pray that you would be merciful to answer your prayer out of Psalms, and that right now in this hour that you would give us hearts united to fear your name. And so, Father, we again ask that now, as I'm sure has been the longing every night, that everything said and done here this evening would be for the hallowing of the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm so excited and humbled to be asked back to this wonderful gathering that takes place every year. For those who don't know me, I had the privilege of serving as the youth and children's pastor at Calvary Baptist Church for almost nine years. During that time, the Lord granted sweet fellowship with many godly pastors that have continued since I left for Durham in 2014. So again, thank you to Dan and to Justin for your kindness in inviting me back. We'll see if I get another request to return based on how things go tonight. So please turn with me to John 16. John 16, the second part of verse 4 into verse 15 will be our primary text this evening. In this passage, we will see Christ give insight into the workings of the Godhead. Specifically, this text is one of the fullest passages in regards to telling us one of the primary aims of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We must remember the context of what has been taking place, which if you have been here for the conference, you've covered quite a bit of it. Christ is coming to the end of his earthly ministry, especially with his disciples. And he is informing them that though he is leaving soon, this is for their good. 
and the glory of the Father. To see this, let's begin in the later part of verse 4 into verse 6 of John chapter 16. Christ says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So Christ states that he has specifically not said some things to his disciples because they were at that point unable to handle it. We will see what changes that in a few moments. But take notice that it is very clear that the presence of Jesus Christ physically was their comfort. And with his soon departure, their hearts would be filled with sorrow. But with that, Christ lets them know he won't leave them in that state and will send another to be their comforter and their helper in their time of need. And this helper is an advantage to them. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here Christ specifically tells his disciples that he must go away so that the helper will come to them. And when Christ goes away, he will send him to them. Well, who is this helper Christ is speaking of? Well, he's already answered that in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 15. Look there with me. The context of this, of chapter 15, is that he has told his disciples of the hatred they will experience from the world in verses 18 to 25. And then he states these needed words in starting in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will, he will bear witness about me, and you also will, will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So, we, so who is this Helper? He is none other than the Spirit of truth. And he will come to bear witness about Christ and strengthen the disciples to also bear witness about Christ as well. In essence, in verses 4 through 7, Christ is saying to his disciples that though he, the second person of the Trinity, was about to depart, soon he would send the ever present third person of the Godhead to be their helper along the way. And what, what would the Helper and Spirit come to do? Well, verse 15:26 already began to lay that out when Christ said, He will bear witness about me. That will continue to be a crucial truth as we go along. But how will this Helper do this? Well, verse 8 through 11 of chapter 16 expounds upon this work. Look at verse 8. Of chapter 16. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness, righteousness and judgment. 
So Christ says the helper will come to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He then expounds upon each of these in verse 9 to 11. Look at what he says. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, to be honest, there is much discussion among commentators about these verses. Some think Christ is simply saying that the Spirit will reveal or expose the world of its guilt. Others, as I do, believe this is talking about the work the Spirit does as He awakens one formerly of the world to salvation foundationally found and only in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. I lean this direction because of what verse 26 of chapter 15 stated as well as what we will are about to see in verses 12 to 15. But here, it's clear that the Spirit, as He bears witness about Christ, does so to a lost person in these three areas. He awakens them of their sin and need to believe upon Christ. And to not do so brings deserved judgment. The same judgment coming to the enemy, Satan himself. But the Spirit awakens not only the dead to the problem, but the solution. Specifically, the solution of righteousness. But not the facade of their own righteousness, but that of Christ who is at the right hand of the Father. To be a believer is to be awakened to the glorious imputed righteousness of Christ and His ongoing mediatory work before the Father on our behalf. But if that were not enough, the Spirit will also continue to reveal the glory of Christ to those whom He has brought to new life. And without Him and this work, we will never grow in our understanding of Christ. Look at verse 12 to 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Christ specifically tells the disciples that there are many things He is going to say to them but they will never understand them until God the Spirit comes to them. And what will the Spirit do for His people? Guide us into all the truth by revealing or speaking the words of Christ that He has given. The Spirit does this all for one purpose. Christ says He will glorify me. And there, beloved, is the primary longing of the Spirit to make much of Jesus Christ. 
You may hear some in our day speak of a longing to be a spirit-driven, spirit-controlled, spirit-focused church. But based on this passage, can I say with clarity, the most Holy Spirit-driven, Holy Spirit-focused, Holy Spirit-controlled congregations are the ones that speak of and are focused most not on the Spirit, but upon Jesus Christ. The clearest evidence that the Spirit is moving and working among your body is that Christ is glorified most regularly and treasured most deeply. For that is the purpose of the Spirit. To reveal the worth of Christ and see to it that He is glorified. Because, beloved, if He doesn't do so, it will not happen. Without His work, we will all have remained in the state of a plethora of examples to come in the passion narrative in the rest of John's Gospels. We could look at a number of them, but one stands out in sad irony. Look at John 18. Just flip over one page, probably. John 18, starting in verse 19 and going to verse 24. The context is that Christ is brought before the high priest for questioning. And he rightly questions why they were taking issue now when they've had ample time to confront Christ. Look at verse 19 to 21 of John chapter 18. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what, heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. But then we see the sad and heinous reaction of one of the high priest's guards in verse 22. Look at 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Do you not see the horrific irony in this man's actions and statement in attempt to show honor not due to the earthly high priest this man strikes and shows infinite dishonor to the true high priest are we not left asking officer is this how you treat the ultimate high priest? And beloved, apart from the work of the Spirit, this is all of us before Christ. 
Whether you were lost in legalism and self-righteousness or licentiousness or even the staunchest of atheists, we all had a quote-unquote high priest in our world that we viewed as the most holy and precious thing in our hearts and had no issues with smacking Christ in the face to defend it. Sadly, even as believers, we still war with this in our own souls. Every time we sin, we do this. We defend the idol in our world to demean the only one truly do glory. And look at how Christ replies to this action in verse 23 and 24. And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about it, about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. You see, Jesus asks the right question, doesn't he? Why do you strike me? Well, be assured, beloved, Christ is not asking because he doesn't know the answer to this question. Not only because he is God, but because he already answered it in one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. And it has everything to do with the work of the Spirit. Look with me in John 3. John chapter 3, starting in verse 16 and going to verse 20. John 3, 16. And this passage explains what just took place in the court of the high priest. Look at verse 16, going to verse 18. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but... Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Don't you see that apart from belief in Christ, all are already condemned? And what does it look like before belief in Christ? And what is the natural state of man before the miracle of conversion? Well, verse 19 through 20 tells us. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Don't you see the response of man to the light of Christ. We would rather strike the light to defend the darkness we love. The question is, what is the remedy for this? And famously, Christ explained it 
in the earlier verses of this passage. We must be born again, brought from death to life, from blindness to seeing all by the work of the Spirit. Look at verse 5 through 8. Christ said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and there he's pointing and speaking to Nicodemus, a teacher of the law about the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, and then later in this section, Ezekiel 37, but that's a whole other sermon. But anyway, just catch the point that he's saying you must be born of water and of the Spirit. He cannot, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Hear this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Beloved, don't you see that apart from new birth, apart from the revealing of the worth and sufficiency of the Savior, all by the Spirit, we would have no hope. Don't miss the humbling reality of verse 8. Why would the Spirit awaken me to new birth? Why would He reveal to my once blind heart the glory of Christ? Simply put, because he was pleased to do so, period. I completely understand the motive of popular songs with lines like, Holy Spirit, you are welcomed here. However, can I pause and say, praise God, the Spirit blows and moves whether He is welcome or not. Because if He only went where He was welcome, He would never reside in the heart of any man. It is His very working within our dead, rebellious hearts that brings us into new life. New affection. New longing for the glory of the one He has revealed to us. If the Lord has done this in you, marvel in humble amazement. I appreciate a quote in a message I recently hear, heard Alistair Begg say when he said the following, God works within us to create in us things that cannot be produced by our own dead, enslaved humanity. And God does this always in the same way. He does it through His Word and He does it by His Spirit. Believer, may the Spirit continue to guide us into all truth and elevate the glory of Christ in our born-again souls. 
Whether the Spirit saw fit to do this miracle and He saw fit to bring it about yesterday or 50 years ago, rest assured He will continue His work as our helper to glorify Jesus Christ. To anyone who may be lost here tonight, and you may be wondering if the Spirit is working within your heart, And blowing breath and new birth into your dead soul. In that same message, Begg answers that question so well when he states the following. Someone may be asking, how would I ever know if this miracle is in progress? Well, let me ask you. Are you beginning to see that you've done wrong And that God is rightly angry with you. Are you beginning to sense that Jesus has been sent by God the Father to bring you forgiveness? If so, that is the work of God's Spirit. We could never believe such things without His help. And the salvation that He provides, He provides completely. Because no sin is too shameful. He provides permanently, separating us from the guilt of our sin forever. He provides unconditionally because none of us can make ourselves worthy of forgiveness. The work of the gospel is totally uninfluenced by our status or lack of it. And He saves us immediately. Our sins are gone. If this is you tonight and you are being awakened all by the work of the Spirit that you are weaker and more sinful than you ever before believed but in scandalous amazement you also are awakened to the glorious truth that in Christ you are more loved and accepted than you ever dare hoped. Praise God for the work of the Spirit to bring you to repentance and belief in the life of Christ in your place, in the wrath-absolving death of Christ in your place, and the victorious resurrection of Christ in your place, all for the glory of Jesus Christ. May we all stand amazed at the glorious, unmerited work of the Spirit to complete what he began all to the praise and worship and affection of Jesus Christ our Lord. I'll sum it up this way. If you leave after studying and thinking through these texts with any ounce of pride, may the Spirit crush it and elevate his praise. Let's pray. Father, We confess that apart from your working, apart from your spirit blowing as the wind wherever he sees fit and moving among us, we have no hope. 
God, why would you see fit to send your spirit to us? Because you were pleased to be gracious to former rebels. Lord, I ask and pray that you would help us see that if there is any longing, any desire, any wanting for Jesus Christ to be affectionately glorified, that is evidence and can only be there by the scandalous mercy and work of your spirit. Father, may you receive all the praise for it. And we ask as we continue tonight, Lord, in hearts here that long for you to move, and even in hearts that still stand dead and cold, would you blow and bring life? And we ask it in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Five-minute break, I am told.